In previous weeks, we've dealt with the question of what counts as a primary text of halacha and why it is that we give so much weight to texts such as the Gemara. How did the Gemara come to be understood as a primary source and not merely interpretation of the psukim? Whether Agadah, whether psukim in a live sense, whether Kabbalah have continuing roles in terms of the formulation of halacha, whether they're viewed as precedent or they're viewed as primary or primary text in the case of psukim that we still have the right to access independently. Before we move on to questions of um, precedent and minhag, and not just the question of what counts as primary sources, um, it is worth noting that as we have explained in the last few weeks, in theory, all poskim will agree that the most important factor in halakha, in theory again, is what do the primary sources of halakha say, which as we noted, should and were at some point only the psukim, and eventually became the material found in Chazal, at least in the Bavli as well. But despite the fact that that is true, one of the problems and one of the reasons that it is so important for post-game to rely on previous authorities is not just because of humility and not just because the role of Misra, all of that is obviously true, but part of it is that as important as those primary sources are, it is often unclear what the halachic conclusion should be. Now, anyone who's ever learned Gemara knows this to be the case. For any issue in the Gemara, you can have countless interpretations. First of all, within the Gemara, then within the Rishonim, you can have machlokot as to which position in the Gemara we should rule in, according, in accordance with. You can have machlokot as to how to understand each of those positions. But there's an even more fundamental issue that I think is worth noting before we move on from these, from these types of questions. And that is the following that one of the problems with text in general, and this is true of primary text, this is true of secondary texts, this is just true of text, is that in the end of the day, texts almost always have a level of ambiguity that is inherent. And it is very hard to say that a primary source obviously says X or obviously says Y. And again, as we've noted, this is true on the level of Machlokot, but I want to really highlight this point by pointing to a few cases in which um, this becomes particularly extreme. So, before we look at examples, let me begin with a text from Sanhedrin. The Gemara in Sanhedrin quotes of Yehuda in the name of Rav. Amr of Yehuda Marav. Ein moshivin b'Sanhedrin elami we do not appoint someone to the Sanhedrin unless he knows how to deem a sheretz, meaning a not kosher, or not tahor, creature, to deem it tahor. And Amarav, and Rav explains how one would do this. Ani adon vataharenu. I will enter into this conversation, and I will explain to you how it is tahor. If a snake which kills and therefore creates the ultimate tumat, tumat mate, it itself is tahor, 
Sheretz, a creepy crawly creature, Sha'eno Mamit, which cannot kill Umarbet Tuma, and therefore cannot create that level of Tuma, Eno Din Taor, isn't it the case that it is Taor? Gemara says, Velohi, this is just incorrect. Midi Dahave Akotz Palma. The Gemara says this logic is incorrect because um, a thorn can also harm, but it is not Tamei, and therefore these things are not necessarily correlated. I bring this text because the Gemara here tells you that to be a member of Sanhedrin was to be able to twist texts in ways that are obviously wrong. And Rabbeinu Tam is so bothered by this implication that he challenges it. He says, Demalanu becharifut shalhevel etaher sheretz me'atorah, timato. Why is this a ma'ala? Why would I want someone to be able to look at a text and twist it in ways that are obviously incorrect? And therefore, Rabbeinu Tam offers a different interpretation of the Gemara. But if we accept the literal interpretation of the Gemara, so we have to wonder, as Rabbeinu Tam did, why would it be that we don't accept someone onto the Sanhedrin unless he has the ability to perform such mental gymnastics as to justify positions that are obviously wrong, that go against the Torah, that go against the primary sources of Halakha. And the answer seems to be that we understand that Psach, in the end of the day, requires us to interpret and interpret creatively and the skills that are necessary to interpret the source of halakha can be misused to counter-read the sources. And a posaic needs to understand that malleability, not so that he can twist it, but that he can understand that as much as he might think that to him something is obvious, it may not, in fact, be that, be so. And there may be other interpretations. And under certain circumstances, it will be necessary to exercise extreme creativity and in interpretation of the halachic text to get to the truth and the best psak. Now, obviously, we would not want anybody to actually attempt to be mitaher sheretz Torah, to actually rule that which is forbidden as permitted, knowing that that is wrong, knowing that that, that is against the Torah. But the skill set the ability to read creatively is inherent to the halachic process. And therefore, when we're trying to figure out who should be a posaic, who should be a member of the Sanhedrin, of the Supreme Court of Jewish law, we want someone who recognizes the theoretical flexibility of the texts. And I think understanding that will highlight why it is that as we shift from our emphasis on what counts as primary sources, why we care so much about the other factors, why we care so much about precedent and previous interpretations and about minhag. Because text, in the end of the day, is malleable and can be interpreted in so many ways that we need some controls. And the controls that poskim take most seriously besides for their own integrity and their own understanding of the text, are the two other factors of Psach that we have discussed, namely previous interpretations and minhag, meaning a posaic, knowing that a text can be read in many different ways, will therefore care 
what it is that previous interpreters have said, because that will help him in his quest to understand not just every possible interpretation of the halacha, but the most plausible interpretation of the halacha. And similarly, he will use minhag, custom, the lived practice of halachic Judaism as an indicator to him of which reads are most likely to be true. In the case of minhag, those that most accord with the way that people who are committed to the halachic system have indeed practiced. And I think it's recognizing that inherent flexibility and malleability in the interpretation of primary texts that explains why it is that the other two factors have such an outsized role, even if in theory one would want to poskin everything based on the objective interpretation and the best interpretation of the of of the particular posek and his interpretation of the primary texts, because we recognize the malleability in interpretation, the flexibility in interpretation, we grant so much weight to the other factors because we believe that using those two factors are often the best way to ensure that the interpretation that we have of the primary sources are in fact correct. Now to highlight this, to highlight how flexible in fact these texts are and why it is so important to rely on these other two factors, I want to take a few extreme examples. First is the following. The Gemara in Sanhedrin and in Psachim, Sanhedrin, Ayin Dalit, and Psachim Chafei, rules after discussing the Machlokot on this issue that there are three cardinal sins. Avodah Zarah, Shvichut Damim, Giloy Arayot, idolatry, murder, and forbidden sexual unions. All of those are Yehareg ve'al Yavor. They're capital crimes for which one would have to sacrifice his life rather than violate. The simple understanding of that Gemara is that it is limited to those three. While there were positions in the Gemara who limited it even further, arguing perhaps that only Avodah Zarah is Yehareg ve'al Yavor, there is no discussion that Gemara have a possibility that there is a fourth or a fifth or a sixth law, which would be Yehareg val Yavor. The rule for every other halacha is Yavor val Yehareg. If one is faced with the possibility of violating the law in order to save one's life or sacrificing his life, one should sacrifice the mitzvah and save his life. Nevertheless, Again, that's under normal circumstances. There are extenuating circumstances of Shad Hashemad where that is not true, but that is not our discussion for now. Nevertheless, there are Gemarot that seem, especially in Agadic contexts, to write that there are other things which are Yehareg Val Yavor. So if one looks at the Gemara that appears in Baba Metzian, Nunchenam, Betu, Nunchenam, and Aleph, as well as its Sotad the Gemara writes... that first it says that embarrassing people in public is terrible. And it counts it within the three types of people who are Yordin ve'in olin, habal e'shirish, ha'malbin b'nei chaveiro b'rabin, v'amechat ne'et, v'amechat ne'ashimra l'chaveiro. And in that context, in that polemical context, in that context of how bad embarrassing people, is, how bad it is to embarrass people publicly, the Gemara writes, 
Amar Rabba Barachana, Amar Rabbi Yochanan. Noach lo Adam sheyavo al safek eshet ish v'yalbin pinei chaveiro berabim. It is better for somebody to sleep with a doubtful married woman rather than embarrass someone publicly. And then the Gemara pushes even farther. And the Gemara says that it is better to so Amar Marzutra by Rav Tuvia Marav Amri La Amar Rav Chana Barbizna Amar Rishimun Bchasida VeAmri La Amar Biyochan Mishim Rishim Ben Yochai Noach Lo Adam Shiapil Atzmol Dikivshana Eish Val Yalbin Bnei Chaveiro Birabim. It is better for a person to throw himself into a fiery furnace and not to embarrass his friends in public. Minalan, how do we know this? Mitamar. From Tamar, the Gemara tells the following story, or alludes to the following story. In Breshit, Yehuda marries off his son, heir, to a woman named Tamar. And heir is not a good person, and God kills him. Yehuda does not know that the reason heir dies is because of his of his uh, his evil ways, and therefore he marries off his daughter-in-law Tamar in a yibum-like marriage to his second son, to Onan. But Onan is also evil and refuses to bear the child that would be the spiritual heir of heir, and therefore he refuses to consummate the marriage, and therefore Hashem kills him too. Yehuda at this point, does not want to marry off Tamar to Shelah because not realizing that it was his son's evil ways that led to their death, blames Tamar. She wants to marry his third son, Shelah. But Yehuda, rather than simply saying, I don't want you to marry Shelah, tells her to wait because Shelah is too young and doesn't tell her that he has no intent of ever marrying her to Shelah. Years go by and she realizes that Yehuda has no intention of letting her marry Shelah. Desperate to still remain in the family, she dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Yehuda and becomes pregnant with Yehuda's child. When people realize this, that she's pregnant, she is sent to be killed. They tell Yehuda that that his daughter-in-law had become pregnant, which was a form of adultery because she was bound in marriage or marriage in potential to Shela, and therefore Yehuda sentences her to death. However, Tamar, when she had seduced Yehuda, Yehuda did not have money to pay her fee, and therefore he asked Tamar, not knowing who she was, what he should do because he couldn't pay, and she said, don't worry, leave me security, leave me collateral, leave me your cloak and your signet ring, and your staff, <coughs> which he does. And when he sends his friend to collect his security and pay the prostitute, she has disappeared. And therefore, she still has his private things. When she's being sent out to be killed, she sends these things to Yehuda, she sends these items, this personal property to Yehuda, and says that 
I am pregnant with the child of the person who owned these objects. Thereby telling Yehuda without telling him that he was the father. And here the Gemara picks up and the Gemara is essentially asking, well, why did she do that? Didn't she know that by doing that she was risking her life? Because Yehuda, to, sh- to save himself from the shame of it being discovered that he was the one who impregnated Tamar, could have just been quiet and let her be killed. Why would she risk it and go in this roundabout manner that protected him from embarrassment and allowed him to draw the conclusion and then save her when he decided that it was worth embarrassing himself to save her life? So the Gemara says, from here you see, It would be worthwhile for a person to throw himself into the Kivshana and not embarrass someone publicly. Now here, this text creates a tension. Because if you take it at face value, it seems to be saying that embarrassing people in public is Yahareg Val Yavor, which first of all, has a problem because it runs against the canonical source, the Gemara, the halachic text that says that there are only three laws which are Yehareg ve'al Yavor, and this is not one of them. And secondly, um, this text is Agadic. It's in the middle of an Agadic discussion, and therefore, combined with the fact that it seems to be against the Gemara in its halachic context, one would be hesitant to accept any halachic conclusions from this Gemara. A similar version, it should be noted, or a different version, which comes to the same conclusion, is found in the Talchuma in Parshat Vagigash, where the Gemara explains that the reason that Yosef kicked out the Egyptians when he revealed himself to his brothers, despite the fact that he was putting his life in danger, because he was cloistering himself in the room with his dangerous Um, group of very strong people who in the past had killed an entire city with just two of them. Um, The Midrash says the reason was because he would rather die than embarrass his brothers. But how do you read this Gemara? Here's a good example of a text which the simple read of it would dictate that the Gemara in Sanhedrin and Psachim was incomplete. Then, in fact, there are not three, but there are at least four cases of Yehareg Val Yavor. But this would force us to, A, as I just said, assume that the Gemara and Sanhedrin was incomplete, and B, take an Agadic text um, seriously, or literally, for halachic purposes. And here, you have halachic voices that go min from one extreme to the other. Tosvot in the version that appears in Sotada Yudam and Bet, writes that, in fact, the conclusion you should read from this Gemara is that embarrassing someone in public is Yehareg Val Yavor, is a capital offense. How does he reconcile the Gemara and Sanhedrin and Psachim with this Gemara, with this Agarita? He says as follows, in a very surprising statement, he says, perhaps what the Gemara was saying was that there are only three laws which are explicit in the Torah, which are Yehareg Val Yavor. But there can be other Averot, which are not Mifurashot, which are not explicit, which are Yehareg Val Yavor as well. And Tosvo therefore says that not only is he willing to counter-read the Gemara and Sanhedrin, he's willing to counter-read it in light of what seems to be an Agadic text. Rabinu Yonah and Sharei Tshuva, Shar Gimel, Kuflamitet, 
also takes this Gemara literally. To solve the problem of the Gemara and Sanhedrin Psachim, the fact that the, in those texts it is not taken as Yehareg Vali Avor, he argues that that's not a problem because embarrassing someone in public, which drains the blood from his face, is Abu Zrayu de Ritzicha. It is a subsidiary of Ritzicha, of murder, and therefore it's Yehareg Vali Avor because it in fact is one of the subsidiaries of the three that are mentioned in the Gemara Psachim and Sanhedrin. So here you have Tosvot and Rabbeinu Yonah who are willing to counter-read a straightforward halachic text in light of a Nagatic text and rule accordingly. The Me'iri looks at the same Gemara and rejects its implication completely and basically says, this is Agatic, this is hyperbole. And he says, This is the Miri and Brachot and Gimel Bet. You should be careful to never embarrass people publicly. And as an expression, as hyperbole, as nice artistic flourish to highlight how bad this prohibition is, it says, it's better for a person to throw himself into the fiery furnace, but it's not literal. Going even farther, not in the context of embarrassing people publicly, but in the context of Lashon Hara, where the Gemara compares it and says that it is bad as the Shalosh Chamu wrote, that it is as bad as and Avodah Zara, the Rivash in Shuvah Kovayin Aleph writes as follows, it cannot be that this is Yehareg Valyavor, this is a cardinal sin. And then he says, in very, very striking terminology, This has never entered anybody's mind. No person has ever thought this. It's just the way people talk. It's the way the Chachamim talk. That they exaggerate the extreme nature of sins. So that a person will avoid violating them. And here, coming back to our point, you see a text. It's an agotic text. It can easily be written off for halachic purposes, both because it's agotic and because it contradicts the simple understanding of the Gemara in the halachic uh, cases in Sanhedrin and Psachim. And not only do Poskim interpret it differently, but their intuitions are from one extreme to the other. Tosvot and the Shari Tshuva are willing to say, despite the fact that this is Agadic, they're willing to accept it, Lahalacha, and reinterpret what seems to be a straightforward halachic statement that there are only three cardinal sins in order to accommodate this Agadic piece. The Me'iri has no problem saying that this is Agada, this is Derach Tzachot, this is just hyperbole. And the Rivash goes even farther. And he says that which Tosvot and Rabbeinu Yonah took as the actual halachic conclusion, 
He can't believe that anyone ever would have entertained this possibility. Lo Allah al dat shum adam velo chashav enosh. And here you see how extreme it is that no text, no matter how clear, does not contain ambiguity. Because the simple read of the text is indeed what Tosvot and Shari Tshuva write. But on the other hand, the convictions based on the other text and the agadic nature of, of, uh, of this passage lead the Rivash and the Me'iri to say not only is this impossible, and not only is this not halakhically correct, but it's an impossible position. And therefore you see that this text is, and its interpretation is subject to so many interpretive moves and so much subjectivity from those who say, just take it literally, even if it contradicts explicit halachic passages, to those who say, reinterpret explicit halachic passages in order to accommodate this, that highlights, I think, in a very extreme way, how complicated it is to say with any confidence that a particular text says X or Y, and that is why Poskim gives so much weight to previous interpretations, to previous authorities and minhag when attempting to interpret texts because they really are so malleable and can be taken, as in this case, in two completely opposite directions. To take another example of this, the Taz records in Simon Reish Membet a systematic machloket. Often the Gemara will compare to halachot. When it compares them, is that comparison absolute or not? And he writes as follows: Hatur siyem shaviv The context is kiburav aim. The tour writes that your father brings you. Um, to Olam Hazeh, V'rabo M'viyo L'chaylom Abav, V'ein L'cha Kavod, Ki Kavod Rabo, Umora, Kimora. Oh, and there is no honor like the honor of your Rebbe, or fear or awe like that of your Rebbe. V'amru Chachamim, Arabcha, Kimora, Shamayim. And you should fear your Rebbe as much as heaven. V'hiksha B'prisha. And the Prisha asked, Imkain, Mayoter Me'aviv. Hagam B'aviv Katav, Rabbeinu Reish, Siman Reish, Mem, D'chvod Omora, K'chvod Omora, Hashem. If that's the case, shouldn't the kavod of parents and rebbeim be the same? Because they're both compared to the compare to the status of the honor of God. The teretz and the prisha answered. He said, "No problem. Just because you compare something doesn't mean they're equivalent." And therefore, despite the fact that parents' honor is compared to God's, that's not literal. But because of the nature of the drasha, in the case of Rebbeim, it is literal. And therefore, the Prisha says as a systematic rule, even when the Gemara seems to equate to Allahot, he has no problem saying they're not really equivalent. And the Taz says, I don't think that's right. He thinks there is no difference whatsoever. Whenever things are compared, they are compared absolutely. And here, without continuing to the Taz local understanding, this Machloket, the Prisha and the Taz, of whether halachic comparisons in the Gemara should be taken as absolute equivalencies or not, again highlights 
the extent to which texts are often hard to conclusively read one way or the other. In a sort of satirical way, or comedic way, I've heard that Nechama Malevich once said that literally there is no text in the world that if you really wanted to, you couldn't read it. The opposite of its meaning. And therefore she writes, right, if someone really wanted to, he could take the Aseret HaDibrot, instead of reading it as a series of prohibitions, Lo Tirtzach, Lo Tinaf, he could read it rhetorically. Lo Tirtzach, should I not murder? And take it as an obligation or a permission uh, to murder. Now, obviously that's facetious, but her point was that that's just the nature of texts. They can be interpreted in multiple ways, all often mutually exclusive ways, often opposite ways. And that's the nature of text, and that's what makes them so hard to interpret. And these have consequences. The one I just noted from the, ta- from the Taz and the Prisha of whether equivalencies in the Gemara have to be absolute or can just be mere comparisons. Um, the Tzitzel Yezer and Shuvah Yudchet, Simon Ayin Gimel, notes that this is really the subject of a machlokes as to whether one can, in a certain sense, actually fulfill his obligation of having children of Peruvu by adoption. Because the Gemara writes that adopting a child is ki'ilu, yelado. It's as if you had him, where Shlomo Kluger takes it literally, and other poskim assume, like the Prisha, that there's no reason to take every comparison literally. So there are serious halachot that hang on this. And as we saw in the first case, whether you take the Agadata literally and reinterpret the halachic text has Yaharik Valyavor consequences, and the poskim understand it, Now there are middle positions, which I didn't get into because that's not our... Topic, Poskim, who said, maybe, in this case, you don't have to give up your life, you're allowed to, which would be a middle interpretation, a middle way of squaring the Gemara. But my point in this year is simply to note that as the Gemara started, we started with said, anyone who is a, a Posek has the ability to read texts in ways that are highly unlikely. That's just the way texts are. They're ambiguous, and they can be read in radically different ways, and arguments can be given that will permit or forbid. And there's nothing that can be done to completely remove that subjectivity and that ambiguity from text. And therefore, I think that goes a long way in explaining why it is that despite the fact that in theory, yes, every posseik would want to base his halachic positions based on his own interpretation of the primary sources to make sure that he's following Dvar Hashem in the best way as he understands. The reason that in practice, poskim gives so much weight to previous interpretations, to previous authorities, understandings of the halacha, and to the lived practice of, of the Torah, to minhag, is because recognizing that ambiguity makes them doubt themselves and their ability solely to understand Dvar Hashem directly, and therefore, in their attempt to make sure that they, ha- that they interpret halakha in the closest way to the truth as possible, with humility, they approach that interpretation of those texts with those other two factors of psak, with an eye to what previous poskim have said, as well as with an eye towards the lived practice of Torah. And that, I think, explains, at least to a large extent, why it is that despite the obvious importance of primary texts, when it comes to practical psaks, so much weight is given to both previous authorities and minhag, which, and we will explore in the coming weeks the exact ways in which we use both of those tools when adjudicating halachic questions.